I'll tell you why we wanted to focus on heaven this morning. As you're going to find in just a minute in John chapter 7, Jesus is focused on heaven. While he's aware and he's active and working on planet earth, in John, as we see very clearly, you're going to see a brief moment where Jesus' mind wanders to the place where we all belong. So here's where we left off last week. And if you don't mind, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7 so we can all be on the same page. We left off with Jesus in Jerusalem. He's gone there because of the fact that it's the Feast of Tabernacles. As we talked last week, it's one of the three major feasts of the Jewish calendar. And this is the most popular feast. It's a big celebration. Celebrations were very important to them. We talked last week about this being like a Thanksgiving day times seven. So Jesus is back in Jerusalem, and what we discover in John chapter 7, verse 32, is that this is the last part of the feast. It's at the very end of the week. Lots of celebrating has gone on, but what you need to know is that each day builds upon the next, and by the time they get to the seventh, there's a crescendo. There's a climactic moment, and that's where we find ourselves this morning. So look with me if you can follow along up on the screen, or if you have your own Bibles, you can read along there. Um, John 7, 32, this is where it starts. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Now, you'd read that and say, "What what are they muttering? Now, we learned last week the word muttering there doesn't mean complaining. It means they're talking in a hushed tone. They don't want anybody else to hear them because it's off limits. You're not supposed to talk about Jesus in public. So the response of the Pharisees and the the leaders, the chief priests, is to go into action when they hear people talking about Jesus in these hushed tones because they've said, you can't talk about Him in public. Yet they are. And because people are turning to Christ, if you go back just a couple verses, you see that they're beginning to profess that Jesus is who He says He is. They go into action and they decide to arrest Him. Matter of fact, if you look at the screen when it says they sent officers to seize him, that makes it official. Now they've signed his death warrant because they've taken officers, police officers, these are the temple guard, and they've sent them out to arrest him. This is no longer the mob trying to seize him. This is officials. Now what's remarkable about this is that these individuals are motivated to arrest him because they don't want anyone else coming to Jesus and so this is like the Democrats and the Republicans working together. Okay? When you see this, the Pharisees and the, and the chief priests, they hated each other. They would not work together. As a matter of fact, the, the high priests were of the Sadducean line, and the Pharisees were opposed to the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in heaven. They, they had a different theology about God. The Pharisees did, and they butted heads all the time. But they hate Jesus so much, they're willing to work together. So we've got to get rid of this guy. Let's work together. Let's come together. That's their reaction. Now, Jesus is aware. He's aware of what's going on in the background. He knows the hearts of men. So verse 33 starts out with saying, therefore, because he's knowing what's going on, verse 33, therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So the officers are coming. 
He's aware of what's going on in the background. And his mind begins to wander for a little while longer. The word he actually uses is the word chronos. And it means time. It's chronology. It's where we get it from. And the chronos meaning a space of time. So it's October. By the time April arrives, Jesus will be murdered. And so he's got this brief little window. I'm only with you for a little while longer. And then he says this, I go to him who sent me. Now this phrase that jumps out by itself, I go to him who sent me, set me back a little bit. I'm working through this text and I'm looking at it and thinking, this is like back to the future with Michael J. Fox. I'm trying to get that phrase in my head. And when that movie first came out and, and the title of it was Back to the Future, I'm trying, back to the, how, do you, how do you go back to the future? And I'm looking at that phrase and the same thing, my mind's wrestling. I go to him who sent me. Because of these phrases that Jesus uses, I want you to see the words Jesus used. The word go, first of all, is this, hupago, to withdraw out of sight his departure. So I'm departing out of your sight. And I'm going, pempo, this is the next word that's used, to the one who sent me, the one who dispatched me. From the point of departure of another world, I was dispatched. And I've come and I've accomplished what I was sent to do. And now I'm going back from where I was dispatched. See, in order to be going back to the one who sent you, you had to have been there in the first place, right? That's why that, that phrase is so troubling. It's so hard. You look at it and try and put that in your mind. Wait, he came from another realm. He's come here to do what God called him to do. And now he's going back. Back to what? That's what we want to ask ourselves. So if we were like Hollywood movie producers or cinematographers and we were capturing this scene that's taking place in the temple courtyard, Jesus is talking to this group, a good producer would take that moment and say, freeze frame right there. And Jesus would stop. And the crowd would stop moving. and Everybody's frozen. Because what we see is Jesus' mind has wandered to the place where he's come from. Because he says next, I'm going someplace where you can't go. Back to what? Back to what he's known before. Let me help put this in context for you. Look with me up on the screen at Philippians 2.6. Christ Jesus, although, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So previously, he had some other attributes which he emptied himself of, to come to planet earth. So in this context, we understand he's pointing back to a time that he knew before, a time when he was different. Go with me up on the screen also to John 17, 4. Jesus said, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had before the world was. So what's Jesus' request of God? Restore to me the glory which I knew in another realm before I emptied myself and came and carried out this work that you've given me to do. Bring me back to that place of glory. And how does he get there? How can that happen? He's saying, restore to me the glory through death. 
Now, death doesn't sound very glorious, does it? Especially the kind of death that he died. But his death is his entrance back into heaven. That's how it's going to happen for him. Look with me on the screen, Philippians 2.8. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So the Jewish listeners, this crowd that's gathered around him while he's teaching in the courtyard, are hearing him say, I'm going to another place, and where I'm going, you can't come. They hear him say, you have no access to me. But Jesus said this exact same phrase later to another group of individuals. The exact same words, except he added one thing onto it. Let me show you the difference. John 13, 33. I am with you a little longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, and he's referring to the Jews at the temple, the group that he'd been talking to previously, as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now but you will follow me later. Here's the difference. He's talking to the crowd at the temple. It's full of non-believers, people who have not professed faith in Christ. And so he says, where I'm going, you can't come. But when he's talking to Christians, those who are followers of Christ, Peter included, where I'm going, you cannot come now, but you will later. There's part of the promise Do you have that sense of hope? Do you have that sense of anticipation? I find many people, myself included, tend to forget about the promise of heaven, that hope that he gave us. And I don't mean hope in the way that we use it in the English language. I want you to see the way hope is used in the Bible. First of all, look at this definition on the screen, the word mikvah. That's hope in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew term. Something waited for with confidence. Now, it's also used in the New Testament, in the Greek language. Here's the word, elpis. And elpis says this, to anticipate with pleasure, the expectation or confidence with pleasure, you have confidence that what Jesus promised is going to carry out. So here's the way that it's used in the New Testament. Peter used it himself in 1 Peter 1. Look with me on the screen at this. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living peace, a living confidence, a hope. This isn't hope like, I hope I get an A on my algebra test. This isn't, I, I hope I get that job promotion. This is a hope you can take confidence in that it's actually going to happen. So he says, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance, pay very close attention to this, this is you, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved, where church? Reserved in heaven for you. That you can take to the bank. That's confidence. So do you see why I say there's a freeze frame moment? 
Jesus is focused on somewhere else. Something else is going through his mind. Now, I don't often rabbit trail away from the text. I'm intentionally moving away from the text this morning to help us envision heaven because there's a blueprint given for us in Revelation. So if you don't mind turning over to Revelation chapter 21, I'm going to rabbit trail over there for a minute just so you can see some of the descriptions of what waits in store for you so that you can have this confidence. First of all, according to the Bible, Heaven not only is an actual place, but there's three different ways heaven is used in the Bible. First of all, there's the heavens that are referred to as the atmosphere around us, what surrounds us here on planet Earth. That's, that's what we would call the first heaven in theology. The second heaven in theology is interstellar space, the galaxies, where the universe exists. And the third heaven that theology refers to is the place where God exists, that realm that's beyond where Jesus was going to where others couldn't go. So to help you understand this, I want you to see on the screen, Revelation 21.1, first of all, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. So John's looking forward into the future and the old earth is destroyed and John says, I see a new heaven. A new earth has been created. So the first heaven he's talking about here is the atmospheric heaven, the one that surrounds the planet. He saw this new atmosphere, and he uses this word kainos, which is part of the name of New Hope here, our church. We chose this name, New Hope, for a reason. This name is part of it, kainos, new, something brand new, fresh, never before seen. So this is what John's seeing. He looks and he sees the new heaven, something never before imagined, never before seen. And then go go with me to verse 2. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So we're going to get a description now of the capital city of heaven. What we have here, beginning in verse 2, is the holy city, and the phrase holy is attached to it, meaning that it's been set apart for God's purposes. That's what holy means, set apart, sanctified unto God. So the holy city that he sees is the capital city of heaven, and it's been prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And we get details telling us specifically this is an actual city. Now, New Jerusalem itself is not heaven, heaven's capital. And there's a blueprint in verse 16 for help us to understand this. And he says, it's coming down out of heaven, the third heaven where it's been prepared, and it's coming down to planet earth. So John's looking in the future and seeing this. And we understand, according to what Scripture says, that believers, when they die, immediately go to this heavenly city that Jesus is preparing for us. That's what he told us. He said, look with me on the screen, John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, if, so those of you that love theology, I was thinking through this this week. We see Jesus saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and yet John sees this heavenly city already prepared coming down. Does it happen that every time somebody professes Christ and becomes a believer that Jesus has to start a new addition and put a new room on? 
because you've got new people being added all the time? Is that what he means by I'm going to prepare a place for you? I'm not sure. I'm just wrestling through that. What does that word prepare mean? Because everything was created in the beginning. God created everything and said it was good, including heaven and this heavenly city, but yet Jesus says, I'm going to prepare it. So I'm just kind of wrestling through this, but we find this brilliant description given that a bride adorned for her husband looks like the city, and he uses a word, cosmos. Look with me on the screen at the definition for adorned. Cosmos, an orderly arrangement or a decoration. So we use cosmos when we're talking about the space, the orderly arrangement of stars out in the universe. God uses it for that description, but also for the description of heaven. It's the root word for cosmetics, an orderly arrangement to decorate. And this is what John does. He says, it's so, it's so beautiful. It's like a bride coming down the aisle who's been adorned for her husband. You've all been to weddings. A woman, that said, is never more beautiful than on her wedding day, meaning she's gone to great lengths, great work to prepare herself for that moment when hundreds will stand and turn and see her. And that's what John says. I don't have enough words to describe this, so I'm going to say, it's so beautiful. It's like a bride coming down the aisle. She's been adorned for her husband. Here's the next detail in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. So picture this. This huge angel stands up. Behold, God is among men. This is virtually shocking. This truth is so staggering. Why? It thunders through heaven when this angel shouts this out. Because God has not been with man dwelling with him since the fall in the garden. God walked with man in the cool of the day in the garden in fellowship, but then came sin. And so we have to go all the way into the book of Revelation to the end of days when an angel stands and says, it's again restored. God is dwelling with man. That word actually is used as tabernacle. It means to tent. God's moved in among us. Go with me to verse 4. And what does your God do? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. What is that? It's a reversal of the curse. You've got the curse of sin, pain, turmoil, death, anger enters the world with sin. Sin's wiped out. Everyone's in heaven. It's a reversal of the curse. And it requires negatives to actually describe it because John's familiar with pain. He's familiar with crying and he's saying, I'll use negatives to describe it. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. You know pain in your life? Do you live with it every day? There's no more in heaven. No more death. No more sorrow. And look at this. Your, your God actually carries a, a box of hankies in his pocket. He wipes away every tear. There's no reason to have any tear. Because you have perfect bodies. You're going to be seen like Jesus was after the resurrection, according to Scripture. You will be like Him. Perfect body. Perfect structure. Who can declare that, church? Who can promise you that and back it up? There's only one that I know of that can do that. He's the star breather, according to Psalm 33. 
He's the one that by the very breath of His mouth blows galaxies out. Psalm 33 says, Your God blows stars out into space. So when we see the Whirlpool Galaxy, we think 36 million light years away and it's only one of billions that God blew out into space. Your God is the one who can say, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. And that's just the beginning, church. You haven't even made it into the heavenly city yet. There's a blueprint for us. John gets a personal tour of the city. And the most distinguishing feature of it is what he mentions first. It's blazingly bright with the Shekinah glory just streaming out of it with the presence of God. Unlimited, unconfined, God's presence is there. Look with me at the descriptions now, the blueprint, verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. So this is real. There's actually limits and specific dimensions. God gives us measurements of this. And it's not just one pearly gate like you hear in the jokes. There's 12 of them. There's 12 gates. And this is so huge that it requires an angel to stand outside the gates, guarding the gates. We get these specific dimensions here that we understand that this is a legacy of God's work on earth when he says, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are inscribed above the gates. Referring us back to God's work among the people in the Old Testament. But not just the people chosen from Israel, the Old Testament people, but also built on the foundation of the church. Look with me at verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So John's in heaven, he's getting this tour of the city, and he sees his own name inscribed in the foundation of heaven. Would that not be cool? Man, it's my name there. It's built upon the foundation of the church. So you've got the linking of the Old Testament with the New Testament. The foundation stones, the gates, the angels that stand outside them. And we get a detail about who built this when we look at Hebrews. Look with me on the screen at Hebrews 11.10. The city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So your God is a designer and he's a general contractor. He's the one that put the plans together. And he personally is the builder of it. He wanted to make sure it's right. You love architecture? Do you love buildings? You've got the imprint of God upon your life. God is a designer. That's the stamp of God. You're an image bearer of God. Go with me now down to verse 15. The one who spoke with me, meaning an angel, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. I don't care how big your measuring tape is. It's not that big. 1,500 miles and the angel's able to measure that. That's a big measuring tape, church. You can't find one like that at Home Depot. And his is made of gold. And he tells us that its length and width and height are equal. So he's obviously talking about this city still. It's a cube. This place that Jesus has gone to prepare that's going to come down out of heaven and descend upon the new earth. 
this place where you'll be able to dwell, where believers go now when they die. So how big is this planet that it's able to sustain a city of this size? This city, if you measured it out, would go from Toronto, Ontario to the Gulf of Mexico and from Colorado at the Rocky Mountains to the Atlantic Ocean. 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles and 1,500 miles high. Is that not massive? No wonder John's struggling with words for this. And that's not all. Here's where I want to end with it today. Verse 21, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So how big does that oyster have to be to make a pearl that big? A single pearl for one of those gates. Imagine that you've been given the responsibility to describe to someone who's been born blind what a rainbow looks like. Then you grasp what John's trying to do. See, a person born blind has never seen a rainbow. How could you possibly describe something like that to them? John's trying his best to take these words to describe the indescribable, to help us get in our mind these dazzling spectrum of colors. Why did God give you these words? To excite you. To build that sense of anticipation based on your hope. That's why I say, freeze frame, Jesus' mind is someplace else. He says to them, where I'm going, you can't come. And you're going to seek me, but you will not find me. See, he's thinking about another realm, a place that he's been before. I go back to the one who sent me. Uh, they begin, these individuals, we'll go back to this moment at the temple. They begin debating about what he just said and why he said it. Look with me at John chapter 7 again now, verse 35. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement? He said, You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So this is what they're doing. They're doing what you and I do. They're thinking planet Earth. Where is he going? Is he, is he going up to Greece? He's not going to go work with the Gentiles. We're the chosen people. Why would he go up there? They're thinking planet Earth, and that's what we think. Is that where Jesus is mentally? No, he's thinking of his heavenly home. So this energizes the curiosity of the crowd but they think it's preposterous that he'd go work with the Greeks. Now, it'd be very incomplete for us to stop right there without seeing what comes next. Because remember, Jesus is at this feast and he's about to offer an invitation. Go with me to verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke on the, of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now we're told it's the last day. I told you there's seven days. So each day built upon top of another one. This is the last day of the festival. 
And this is when Jesus decides to speak really loudly. But here's what he did. Rabbis always sat. So when they were teaching, the people gathered around them had to listen very closely. They'd spread their robes, they'd sit down, they'd begin talking about theology. But if they had something very significant to say, a rabbi would stand up. And in his big outdoor voice, he would begin booming what he wanted them to hear. And that's why John says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. What did he cry out? This invitation. Now here's what you need to know about what's going on in the background. On the seventh day, we'll call it Super Bowl Sunday because that's what it's like. It's a huge celebration. They would carry a bowl over to a pool, the pool of Siloam. They would dip it in, and this was the responsibility of the priest, to dip it in and bring out a big container of water. And the chief priest, walking with the priest, would carry it back through the city, through the water gate, into the temple, before all of the millions who had gathered. And they would carry this big vase up to the altar. And the chief priest's responsibility was to dump the water out on the altar as a symbolic offering to God. Why? Because in the wilderness wanderings, back when Israel escaped Egypt, God instructed Moses to strike a rock and water came gushing out of the rock. It was symbolism to represent how God provided for them when they were dying of thirst in the wilderness. So every year on the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, the priest would dump out this water symbolizing God's provision for them as a nation. That's when you see Jesus standing up and saying what? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me for a drink. I put this down in point number 14 of your notes this morning because I really wanted you to get this. What he's doing is saying, this is a personal invitation. If you believe in me, you personally have to come to me. If anyone, singular, is thirsty, let him, singular, come to me, individual. It's not the entire nation. He's talking to people specifically. Jesus' invitation is to you individually. You have to respond individually. That's why he's doing this at this moment. Now, this leaves a little bit of confusion for people. When they go to verse 40, we see that some believed and some couldn't understand. Verse 40 says this, Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? So some heard, and they're convinced. He's the prophet like Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18. Move forward with me to verse 45. The police officers now re-enter the scene. The officers then came to the chief priest and Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. So the Supreme Court is frustrated, and they're angry, and their tempers are scorching hot, 
And they turn to the police officers and say, what's wrong with you? You didn't even arrest him? Matter of fact, I want you to see the specific response the police officers gave to the Supreme Court. The Greek language interprets it this way. Never man spoke like this man. Emphasis on the second word. Never man, as in mankind, spoke like this man. That's why their response is, have you been deceived too? Because they're saying he's something other than man. They're moving through the crowds to do their job. They're police officers. They've got their handcuffs out. They're ready to seize him. And they're overwhelmed by his words. So much so that they're just paralyzed. They're astonished. And they can't even carry out their work. So one of the elders, one of the Pharisees, steps up on behalf of all the group and chastises them. What we know that's going on in the background is that Jesus is aware. He's aware that his time is limited, down to just six months now, and his mind is drifting to another place. He's thinking about this other realm, and the crowd is buzzing with questions. Who is this? What's going on? And in the midst of it, and here's where I want to close today, it's important to remember this. Even though people are rejecting him, some are trying to arrest him, some want to kill him, in the midst of all that, he still stands with an invitation. If you're thirsty, you want to know true righteousness, believe in me. Because where I'm going, you can't come unless you believe. So for now, you've got to stay behind. But there's a point in time when you can join me. That's why he offers that invitation. He's the source of the water of life. So the crowd that's watching him is left with the exact same response you have to give today. What do I do with this? What do I do with this Jesus who's making these claims? Who's saying, I can't get to that other place unless I come through him. That's where I'm going to leave it this morning. I'm just going to leave it hanging with you. I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to read to you 1 Peter 1.3 to remind us again about that living hope. So would you just join me for a moment in prayer? Father, we've heard all these very, very explicit reminders about what waits for us, and yet it is only a glimpse Your word says that our eyes have never seen, our ears have never heard. It's never even entered into our mind the things that you have in store for us. But yet, for those of us who name the name of Jesus, we will one day see it face to face. So Father, until then, I ask for this church, for the men and women who have gathered here, that as we take on the responsibilities of this day and the week ahead of us, the things that we don't even know yet lay in store for us, remind us, God, as we come up against financial issues and against health issues and relationship issues, remind us, Father, help us to not lose that glimpse of what's waiting in store for us. Give us a sense of that living hope. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. This is 1 Peter 1, three. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. 